Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. The Derek Chauvin versus State of Minnesota trial continues into the second week of prosecution witnesses. On day six and seven of the trial, several Minneapolis police officers testified against Chauvin. On this episode, we summarize each day's testimony and make a case as to why several of the testifying officers should also be fired. We also discuss why excited delirium is institutional racism. The last two episodes, we've shown a competing theme. The police need to protect the system, but they also need to protect themselves. What's more important? Who's the biggest threat? Is this case so big that Chauvin's going to uncover all the bullshit the police are up to? Basically showing a RICO violation. They're just a a mob doing what they want. Or is this Chauvin case going to basically bury somebody who stepped out of line and killed somebody, and that's against this perfect system we call the police force. And right now, we're moving into the fact that they're going to have to sacrifice one of their own because it's not going too well. Yeah, the the contradictions have been heightened to the extent that the system is going to preserve itself by crucifying Chauvin. They have to. I mean, it, it's getting to the point now where, where Chauvin is, is basically a risk. Does the police union have a fracturing inside of themselves, those that support Chauvin and those who don't? To start day six, we met Dr. Bradford Langenfeld, who is the senior resident at the Hennepin County Medical Center, which is where George Floyd was taken by the EMS. He largely discussed the medical context of his treatment of George Floyd. Uh, he described it as cardiac arrest, which was not breathing effectively. He stated that there was a number of complicating factors to cardiac arrest. He didn't have enough information to assess what caused it. He was simply reacting to it. He knew it was cardiac arrest, and as a doctor, i got to respond this way. Correct. He had no idea that somebody was on his neck, that he possibly was on fentanyl. He openly stated there was no description of drugs. There was no injection of Narcan. He, He knew nothing other than what was in front of him, which was the paramedic saying, no, he doesn't have a pulse, and he's been in cardiac arrest for many tens of minutes. Uh, He stated an interesting stat, which is for every minute that CPR is not administered, there's a 10 to 15% decrease in the likelihood of resuscitation. And this speaks to the cops not providing aid at the scene. So for every minute that they didn't provide aid, George Floyd's chances of resuscitation diminished. And this speaks to what the paramedics were saying, where time was of the essence, we had to do this, 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 and this. We couldn't just go straight to the hospital because we have to do this, 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 and that's better done in a fixed location with as many people as possible helping. They knew that, that they had to get it started now because it's not like he's bleeding out. They can put on a tourniquet as I drive to the hospital for further. They have to do in-the-field operations now to save this man's life. And the paramedics go through a standard protocol of what to do during cardiac arrest, and by all accounts, they did this successfully. There weren't any observable errors where it was like, oh, well, I accidentally slid his wrists with the scalpel. Like, none of that happened. They did everything by the book exactly how they were supposed to, so far as we know. There wasn't anything out of the ordinary that presented itself as, oh, that's obviously wrong. In in this case, the doctor's whole reason to be on the stand is to basically establish that he was already dead and that there was that that (laughs) nothing that was done or could be done was going to save his life because he was already dead. Correct. The doctor spent a lot of his time testifying about this concept called pulseless electrical activity, 
which is where you're connected to an ECG and you see the, the heart. Typically, it's a QRS where it goes up and then down and then align and then up and then down and then align. It's your standard. This person is breathing alive. Pulseless electrical activity is where you feel on the wrist or the carotid and say, oh, this person doesn't have a pulse, but I'm looking at my monitor and there's electrical activity. Yes. And it doesn't look like the correct QRS. It, it's, I'm going to say it's electrical noise. That's kind of me projecting my viewpoint onto this. But there is electrical activity in the heart as observed. And this is called pulseless electrical activity. And this is a very well understood medical concept. And this witness discussed the causes of it and, and basically what he was evaluating in the moment with regard to George Floyd's condition. He went through all of the various different causes and explained, like, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. But in his opinion, he stated that it was likely caused by hypoxia, which is the restriction of blood flow to the brain. And that was just the most likely outcome. He stated that there was no information that he ingested some chemical that had a trivial antidote. So when you think about antidote, you get bit by a rattlesnake, you apply the antidote and you're fine. There wasn't, he didn't drink bleach. And what you do is you drink the antidote for bleachers. He didn't have any information in that regard. He stated that PEA is not shockable. And my understanding of PEA, which is pulseless electrical activity, is that it typically occurs from hypoxia because the brain is dead, but the heart as an organ is still functional. It's still trying to survive, right? You basically have residual kind of last gasp kind of thing where the muscles are still moving and you still have electricity in the body. You have weird effects where tissue is starting to die and the pH and the blood is changing. And so you get electrical gradients that shift through the entire tissue of the body. That is pulseless electrical activity. And so his, in his opinion, that's what was occurring and it was caused by hypoxia. And again, one more time, what is hypoxia? Hypoxia is the restriction of blood flow to the brain that results in death. Effectively, you don't get enough oxygen to your brain. This goes back to the MMA fighter's testimony. This would be what was called a blood choke. So, so this is exactly what was already spoken about, right? That he was killed, he died, because his brain was pretty much murdered by not having any blood travel to the brain, right? What's the, di- the difference is that in a blood choke in the brain, you stop your brain from receiving fresh blood supply, oxygen, and you basically, your brain, the tissue dies. It needs oxygen to live. It's a oxidation process. It needs it or it dies, as a the air choke, the heart keeps pumping and your whole body, right? The whole body experiences like loss of oxygen in the bloodstream because the circulatory system is pumping to the brain and the hands. And so you're expecting that it's a different type of death than the blood choke. So blood choke and the air choke are two different types of death because of the physiological effects it has on the body. Because your heart is still beating. It's still moving blood around everywhere else, right? You're still getting blood to your heart you're still getting blood to your lungs you're still you're still there in an air choke you just don't have oxygenated blood yeah it's it's a really interesting you know process here i guess to, to go through not only the fact that he was murdered but also how he was murdered and really trying to get the 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 jury up to a point where they can actually understand why or how this murder happened and this is the first medical witness that we've seen in his relevance is framed both as an expert because he is an ER doctor and is eminently qualified to discuss medical concepts, but he also was the physical human being that treated George Floyd. So the prosecution is getting a little bit of a two-for-one here, where they attempt to focus on what happened on that day because it provides context to his cause of death and what the general circumstances were, but he also gets to inject medical commentary. 
I suspect that the prosecution will call a direct medical witness with very, very explicit medical training. Not that this person isn't qualified and has medical training, but... Like a forensics type of person that that's knows the difference between two different types of chokes. Yeah, th- this witness, this was the first time they'd ever testified, and they got their emergency, I think it's the emergency medical license, in 2020. So in the grand scheme of things, this person has been doing emergency medicine for a shorter amount of time than other various experts that exist. Yeah, and people that actually study this, right? There are, there are expert, experts in the field that study this type of death, where this also has other types of, you know, treatments, you know, aneurysm in your neck, where there's other reasons why you might lose blood to the brain. So there are people out there that, that have the ability to talk through this in a scientific medical way. Dr. Langenfeld's testimony continued. He basically stated that after about 60 minutes, he declared time of death. And he did this because he assessed that there was less than a 1% chance of survival based on the general circumstances that had been 60 minutes and there was no pulse. As part of his differential, he did include excited delirium, which, and this is the first reference of excited delirium, and we'll talk about this more later. But he said that it was considered, but there is no evidence, because one of the telltale factors is being sweaty and there was no information about drug use. There was then a little bit of discussion about who can actually declare somebody dead, and he said that a physician in Minnesota. And this was intended to kind of preempt the discussion about whether the EMS people could assess whether George Floyd was dead at the scene. And it's kind of just grasping at straws to say, well, I mean, he was dead, but I don't have a degree to say that somebody's dead, even though they're dead. The, the EMS, they, they know what death is. It's not as if they can't see the body and be like, he's dead. He's limp. Death is effectively a fact. It's not really an opinion. Yep. And these paramedics see death on a regular basis. They know what it is when you roll up to a scene and the person is completely limp and unconscious. And they don't have a pulse. And we're not saying that they're that they're always, you know, for, for you know, very violent crimes. I mean, I mean, you call the EMS a lot to move nursing home dead bodies right i mean unless you have an attending physician in the nursing home that can call it you got to move them somewhere and then you gotta yeah you just call and say this person had a heart attack you know the ems shows up the person's effectively dead they go through their cardiac arrest protocols because there's a non-zero chance of resuscitation but i mean they they know they have a their own statistical model in their mind from just their experience that says this this person i they're dead i i know them they are i've seen it enough there are very clear, observable, like they don't have a pulse. Dead people don't have pulses. So during cross-examination, there was a lot of discussion about Narcan. And Narcan is what's framed as a reversal agent for fentanyl or opioid overdoses. The defense wanted to frame it as, well, they just they didn't administer Narcan. So if they would have just administered Narcan, it would have been fine. Every, all the medical people are incompetent. But, but Chauvin's not. Chauvin's perfect. He did everything right. So there was a very leading question that was something to the effect of, can Narcan reverse opioid overdoses? And the witness is like, yes. And then he asks, can I clarify something? And the defense attorney goes, there was no question, which is his go-to shitty, terrible asshole human being response when a witness says something he doesn't want. Well, I don't understand how that means there, there is no question. Does that mean he's informing the judge that there is no question? And so they don't, they can't talk? Yes. It's basically like an objection, but He's said it multiple times, there is no question. It just it, it appears to just be majorly condescending. It, he doesn't appear friendly. He doesn't appear... I don't think it's a good luck in my view. And so the judge says no, and the witness just kind of says, okay, sorry. The way in which he did it was very benign, in my opinion. 
but I thought the same thing about the firefighter that got chewed out previous days, and the judge yelled at her, but this witness didn't get yelled at. Well, he's a white male um, doctor, so, I mean, you know. I think that's literally the extent of it. I, I really think so, too, which is fucking crazy to sound like. But Literally, he's a white male doctor, so he yeah. didn't get yelled at. Yeah. The defense then turns to this really weird question about, like, if you rectally take fentanyl, is it is the ingestion more acute? And the doctor's like, yes. But it's like, who, what, what fucking relevance does this have? It's just purely a hypothetical. I, it's a bad faith question. Did you check Mr. Floyd's butthole? I mean, that's what it comes down to. For any signs of fentanyl use. I think that's what he's asking the doctor. Perhaps, yeah. It, it's very weird. I And there hasn't been any other medical commentary on any of this. We don't know what the autopsy is yet. Like, we have no idea. It's a contextless question, and it's just a bad vibe in my view. Because, again, it's 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 not just, you know, what's on record. It's also the feel for everything when you are in a jury. It's it's a feel. There's a feeling that you get, right? And, you know, we want to we wanna believe that there's... You know, it's a very sterile environment, but it's it's a very emotional thing. I mean, yeah, bank crimes or financial crimes is very sterile. There's not really a crimes of passion, or this is a very passionate case, and and the defense is not doing a great job making children look like a human. No, not at all. And he, this question really dehumanizes the defense, I think, because it it really draws on the he's a bad black man, drug addict, and he's pushing shit up his ass and. Oh, he's a terrible human being. I don't want to laugh, but what the fuck? What the... I mean, that was my reaction, too, when I saw it. It was just like, the fuck kind of question is this? I almost thought that the prosecution should have made more of an issue about this, but I think to some extent they were just like, you know, if your opponent's making a mistake, just let it continue. Yeah. This was bizarre. So then on redirect, the prosecution just directly goes, oh, you wanted to clarify something. Why don't you go ahead and do that? (laughs) So the witness goes... Yeah, so in this case, Narcan wasn't going to do anything because they were already in cardiac arrest. Which totally fucked. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, let me let me crucify your hypothetical here, okay? Narcan wasn't going to do anything. He was already dead at this point. Hypothetically, if, if you really want to go down the fentanyl path and say it was a drug overdose, the person or the entity that needed to administer Narcan would have been the cops. All right, so then the star witness of the day is next. This is the police chief of Minneapolis. And his testimony took forever and was super disinteresting. This is Police Chief Arredondo. Oh my God! This is this is the entire time. It's like a victory lap of somebody who made it through the ranks of um, racism to be where he is now. It's like if you ever watch Brooklyn Nine Nine, it's basically the chief. Not even joking. Sterile in the conversation. Just a fucking weirdo. Uh, you know, it's all about racism, this and that. And and I'm just gonna jump out here and say it. You know, we talked about this offline before we got to this podcast, and one of the things that that stood out a lot at that time about his testimony was that it appears that he's really mad at Chauvin for killing Floyd because he's black, not because he's poor. And it was more about the chief doesn't like the fact that you're policing on color, that he doesn't mind you policing on class, it's that you police on color. And he's had to fight his way through that, and that's what pissed him off. And it's it's really... Because they spent a lot of time talking about it, right, in, in the beginning of it. These are our values, and this is how I rose through the ranks, and this isn't what Minneapolis Police stands for. It literally is what they stand for. Literally, what the police do is fucking enforce the class divide. Like, you are the police chief of the entity in charge of enforcing the class divide. If, if they didn't murder George, he would have gotten a ticket for fraud using a, a bill 
that maybe he created illegally, maybe someone else created illegally, doesn't matter. An illegal bill. So that's fraud. So fraud entails that you went in there with the act of creating fraud, right? So he was trying to defraud a business for $20 because he got the object plus he got cash back or whatever it was, right? Yeah, he got the cigarettes and he got his change. So the police are there to literally stop a poor person from rising through the ranks using fake currency. If he even knew it was fake. If you allegedly, yes. If you didn't, if you if you knew it was fake, fine. I like that because it's allegedly he didn't. Who knows? I don't know. And we're never gonna know because he's fucking dead. I mean, the 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 clerk did say he was high. I mean, he was nice and high. So yep. who knows if he was in the the right state to to know if a twenty dollars bill was fake or not? What just uh, uh, man? This this guy, this Arredondo guy, he just. He just, oh man, he, it was really a parading the police officer at this point in time, what the values were. This is burying Chauvin from a different angle. It, yeah, this is a very political shot. This isn't about training. This isn't about anything. This is about Chauvin was not one of us, right? He is not one of us because a Minneapolis police officer would not kill somebody. Yes, he is not one of us. And now that Chauvin isn't the other, he's out of the system. He is now the other. It's going to be a lot easier for the prosecution to bury this motherfucker. Seriously. Because you're not going to have the rank and files causing trouble and being a bunch of assholes and abusing power. They're going to accept this bump on the chin and they're going to keep going. They're not going to kill anybody for the next six months and then they'll kill somebody again. And there'll be a pattern in place to absolve all the issues created by that death and they'll ostracize that person again. And from a bigger picture, that's a real, real win for society. But, I mean, policing is still an institution that's totally fucked up. It's so fucked up. I mean, the reason why we're focusing so much on these on this trial is that this is one of the only times that we've seen in modern modern times, I guess, where you actually may get a pig prosecution. They may actually prosecute somebody beyond the blue wall. Minnesota is one of the, the states which I find odd when I when I research Minnesota's police force. They have to have some sort of certification. I'm not sure if you know about this. They had to have a degree, plus they got to take a test or something. I think there's an actual license they have to have. So yes, there is there is discussion in a couple of the succeeding witnesses about what the qualifications are, and you have to be licensed as a police officer in the state of Minnesota. I have no idea what that entails. I don't know either, but but it's one of those things where if you have a license, licenses can be revoked. If you don't have a license, you can't serve anymore. Correct. So why aren't we just revoke a license if if a medical doctor is killing people on the table because they're not a good surgeon guess what happens to their license board revokes it it goes away yeah and i don't i don't understand why the same thing doesn't happen it's it's the same idea you talk about this with people in, in any industry a carpenter's gonna tell you yeah the guy's not you know doing things safely he's off the job site yeah he builds houses on 18 inches instead of 16 inch sides yeah the guy's off the job site done right he's not doing this to code not doing that to code you're off the job site right it's a liability you can't have it here Anyway, if, if you're in manufacturing, you're not wearing your, your steel toe boots, or you're not wearing your safety hat, or whatever the hell you got to wear, you're off the floor. If you're a CPA somewhere and you're not counting the nickels correctly, you get fired. It hap- I mean, it happens. So this is one of those really weird times in which, you know, we say we're capitalists, and we say there should be a market force, but really the market is <laughs> the police. It's the, it's the policing arm of, the, of capitalism. And so they're going to waive all the rules that you would normally see in the free market and I don't believe in the free market, all that bullshit, but you're going to see all the rules being sort of fairy dusted and foo-foo dusted away because they need the police to exist. And so they're willing to look past all the bullshit that happens. This testimony went on for literally hours. I'm going to say only 10 minutes was really that interesting. 
a lot of it was I was born and then I became a police officer and then I became a higher grade of police officer and then I took a test and then I was a lieutenant and it just went on and on and on and on and on. And it was generally political. He's speaking to the news that this is going to appear because at some point as a police chief, I mean, when this happened, he should have been shit canned. Like you are the police chief and this happened under your watch. Immediately. Gone. But he... He's trying to argue that, oh, well, we have values and this was so out of line that I can't be held responsible for this. So there are definitely competing interests in this. If I, if I read his Wikipedia, which is like 45 lines long at the most, I think it's like 15 lines. He won a lawsuit against the city in 2000 something for basically racial prejudices against him. And I think him and like seven other police officers got that. But for some reason, he rose to the top. Which I think, again, is just the it's so fucked up and corrupt there that it's like hand-waving. Look, we got a black police chief. Look, there's no, we're not racist. Basically put a token figure in head in, in place and said, here, we fixed it. The the token black police chief trope, effectively, they, they walk through the video and the police chief provides his input and says, this isn't acceptable. This isn't in line with our policy. That's not our values. This is terrible. And it, it's basically just the police chief going, this is wrong. Like the entire testimony when he's not talking about his ascent to being police chief. Which is really weird because, I mean, leadership starts at the top, right? It's top down. Yep. I mean, the literal policies that are put in place are his policies. The, the police chief has an opportunity to influence policy more than any other person. Yep. And for the most part, he's up there defending that the policies do not allow what Chauvin did. And that, I mean, that's all good and fine. That helps the prosecution. Doesn't help, it doesn't help, um, you know, George. Doesn't help George. Exactly. At the end of the day, this shit still happened and was caused by a member of the Minneapolis Police Department. So that's a fucking problem, right? All the cops were just intent on saying, this is this is wrong. This isn't policy. He wasn't resisting arrest. The defense asked a bunch of hypotheticals about like, oh, if you look at this video, does it look like he's got his knee on his neck or his shoulder blade? And, oh, it's one flame. And it's like, okay. Yeah, he's already dead. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, well, he, he had his knee on a dead person's shoulder blade as opposed to their neck. I, that somehow makes it better. Uh, at one point, and this was at roughly 2.30 local time uh, in Minnesota, the defense counsel said it's been a long week. This was on a Monday. So they'd, they'd been doing trial stuff for like literally four hours. And he's like, I am fucking done already. So from for the most part, the chief's testimony is pretty disinterested and boring, but he did very directly align himself with the prosecution in directly opposing what Chauvin did. And he has to, because again, the prosecution and the police chief work together to basically fight the criminals of Minneapolis all $20 at a time. I mean, they, I mean their, their goal is to fight the working class. And they have to work together. Yep. The last witness of day six, and this was relatively short, was an individual named Katie Blackwell, and she was an inspector in the Minneapolis Police Department. She talked very briefly about police training and working with Chauvin. She selected Chauvin to be a training cop, so if you can believe this, he was actually a training cop during during this incident. Katie has a very bad taste in people. She chose poorly. She chose poorly. I mean, why isn't she gone? I, I don't know. Like, she literally said, hey, Chauvin, why don't you train other cops? I like the way you beat people. Hey, why don't you come over here and show us how to beat people? Think about that. That's fucked up. That makes me... That's so fucking crazy, dude. I don't even like thinking about it because it's so nuts. I mean, all four officers are culpable in this, but imagine being the cop who is training with Chauvin. Like, what fucking chance did you have? And again, that's another problem with the system. It's not even about mistakes. It's about the, that there are so many mistakes that the question is, is, was there anybody actually competent anywhere in this? Or was it designed to be incompetent from the start? I mean, this is an interesting question because it speaks to just the bureaucracy of institutions. In talking about the medical response, I don't think there's been any evidence so far that any individual was incompetent. 
I think all the medical personnel acted absolutely correctly. The two paramedics, all the fire people, and the ER doctors. By all accounts, they did everything correctly. Okay. Yep. You have all the cops that testified as to their training and as to, well, when this happens, we do this protocol. After the fact, how do you respond to this? They all appear to have done everything correctly, too. So they followed the rules. They followed the process. They followed the policies. They didn't deviate. There was no observable, I'm going to say, corruption or intentional malpractice. So you, you have a large number of people that followed the rules. But at the same time, all of these people collectively create this system in which a cop can choke somebody out. Like it, the bureaucracy did it. Well, that's the that's the crazy part. It's is who's held accountable for the training? I don't know who is or who isn't. So Katie Blackwell's testimony, effectively, she's the inspector. She just effectively serves to establish that training is a thing that the police do, and that Derek Chauvin was trained. There's some discussion about use of force, and she said, "I don't know what kind of improvised position that is," and this is with regard to the knee on the neck. It is not what we trained. So she's basically just there to say that we don't train neon neck. It's not part of our training. Chauvin took our training. This isn't part of our training. We're not culpable. Thank you. Have a good day. End of day six. Day seven. Excited delirium is not a thing. It is not a state that George Floyd was in. It is not a state that the drugs he was on will put you in. Is that a good place to be? Because that's where the defense tried to try to take it. And this is our second example of excited delirium. We'll get into it as the, the testimony progresses. Uh, but it's very much something that the defense wants to raise. And it's very much something that the prosecution does not want anywhere near this case. And it's a controversial topic that we'll, we'll elaborate on. Day seven of the trial began with a defense attorney, unrelated to the Chauvin case, advocating for an individual to not respond to a subpoena that the defense raised. So the defense wants to subpoena or force the individual that was in the car with George Floyd, Maurice Hall, to testify about various questions. So this public defender is basically like, under no circumstance will he answer questions because it could be incriminating. Yep. This went on for quite a while. There was no resolution. They're going to take it up later on. The jury was not present for this. And there was a reference to wanting to uh, call this witness next Tuesday. So this implies that the... The prosecution will rest at some point before next Tuesday, which is a week from day seven. I don't think the prosecution wants him to testify because it, all it does is to establish drug use panics, and that's not helpful to the prosecution. Not at all, no. And, and so I don't necessarily know that the prosecution is super interested in charging this individual, but at the same time, they're not going to go out of their way to make it easy for the defense. So this is another example of a poor person being caught in the political kind of strategy of this massive trial. And... I mean, just in the, the various videos that are part of this trial, I think it's fairly clear and evident that this individual is at least indirectly related with drugs and counterfeiting money. Yeah, there's probably a bigger criminal case against this guy. All right, so this brings us to our first witness of the day, and this is Sergeant Kerr Yang. He is a 26-year veteran of the Minneapolis Police Force, and he is largely the person responsible for the training and this concept of the critical decision-making model. This is a diagram that's been showed a number of times. It's basically five circles arranged in a pentagon, and it has arrows going clockwise around it with a circle in the middle that says, voice, neutrality, respect, trust. And this critical decision-making model can largely be described as take into account information and act appropriately. Very simple. But he is the person that devised this, so they're asking him questions about what should have been done? How might you react to certain things? 
his testimony was largely disinteresting because he had very little direct interaction with any of this, but it speaks to just what the intention of the policy is. Yeah, it's just another another nail in the coffin to try to say, you know, he went rogue and because he went rogue and didn't follow the directive, someone died, right? I mean, they're just they're just trying to basically prove that that the training was correct. It was the operator that did it wrong. Right. It was it was user error, not not policy. Not a it's not a bigger picture problem. It's an implementation defect, basically. There was some discussion about what rendering medical aid entails, and this witness was very clear in saying that medical attention is an immediate goal and that if it was safe to do so, they should have provided medical attention. The defense raised the angry crowd trope again and said that, well, the the crowd could have become a crisis and that the officer needed to deal with it. And the officer responded appropriately by assessing the potential issues of the crowd or some bullshit argument like that. And the prosecution was just very, very clear in saying that should medical aid have been provided? And this witness was like, yes. That was the end of his testimony, effectively. The next witness is Lieutenant Johnny Mercil, and he's in charge of the training division. So this individual spent a lot of time discussing the intricacies of the chokeholds and the various neck restraints and what use of force is or isn't permitted. There was a number of graphs and diagrams and knees on neck, kind of like infographics with people talking about is this part of the protocol? Is this policy? This is how this move goes down. The two interesting revelations here is that there's a basically an XY plot with a, a diagonal line, and it goes from green in the bottom left corner to red in the upper right corner, and it's as the subject becomes more aggressive, force can increase. The prosecution used this to say, was George Floyd aggressive and directly attacking the officers and the answer is no so therefore that is more in the green part and when you're in the green part your use of force is limited because use of force should be proportional to the severity of the circumstances based on the decision making model it's a very sterile attempt at engineering a police response that's what it comes down to like objectively the diagram makes sense it's it's linear it's just if a then then b and it's proportional. It's super simple. If the amount of weight and the trailer increases, you need more power to pull it. I mean, it's a very linear, very simple depiction. I mean, it's almost like you don't even need it. You need someone to be able to visualize that line because not everybody can just visualize linearity in their head. Right. And so this is a training graph. And I imagine this graph has been used forever and ever. And it's generally effective at what it does, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? As the force goes up, the force goes up. I mean, it's to one-to-one or, or ten-to-one or whatever the whatever it needs to be. It's just linear. And as much as we bitch about cops and how the institution is corrupt, like, this is how this particular use of force concept should be. There's nothing wrong with it. So during the cross-examination, the, the Minneapolis police introduced a diagram that had an officer basically kneeling on the back of somebody and using it as a handcuffing technique. And they tried to establish that, oh, well, this is a technique that's trained on and see as his knee on his back. And, well, that's that's kind of where Derek Chauvin's knee was on George Floyd. So this must be an acceptable training. So it's fine. And the witness was just very clear to say yes to all their stupid hypotheticals. And then when it would circle back around and say, well, was this an acceptable use of force? No. No, because he was he was already handcuffed. Correct. This is for handcuffing. It, that's exactly it. And it's. The entire thing was like, well, he's already handcuffed and dead, so this is not an acceptable use of force based on the linear application of force relative to the subject's aggression, which is nothing because they're dead. 
the defense introduced a bunch of hypotheticals. Well, like, what if you unhandcuffed him to provide medical aid and he went crazy? You know, is that a risk you want to take? Which is, again, defeated by the whole notion of, um, well, he's already dead, so that, that hypothetical doesn't play out. What, what happens if you don't administer aid? Oh, they die. And you and he dies. What happens if you unhandcuff him and he doesn't get crazy and you save his life? Or you don't kill him? So the defense strategy here was the angry black man trope and uh, the angry mob trope again. So Angry mob, the angry black man. It's the only way that we can say, well, he followed his... He followed his training. If it wasn't for this angry black guy and this angry mob of other black people, I don't know, he'd still be alive because Chauvin could do his job. The defense showed a number of images that were just freeze frames from various different body cameras that appear to show Derek Chauvin's knee on the shoulder blade rather than on his neck. So his right knee is on his shoulder blade and his left knee is kind of on his neck. His shin is on his neck. And it's like, oh, well, everything's fine because of that. I don't really think this is going to play to the jury. There's 100 videos and you can't really be like, Oh, well, I mean, I killed him, but my knee was on his shoulder blade and he died of asphyxia. Uh, I mean, not a great <laughs> argument in my opinion. Yeah, it's not, that's not it, no. This witness end by uh, stating that there was a known concern with, with what's called positional asphyxia associated with the prone position in handcuffs, which is the subject is on the ground, handcuffed behind their back. It creates strain in the chest muscles and it creates difficulty breathing. This is a known thing. And then you have a number of people squatting on your back that, complicates the situation so this is known and the witness stated this the next witness is nicole mckenzie and she's in charge of medical training and she talked a lot about cpr and the need to provide aid her testimony was largely uninteresting but procedural she showed some cpr cards that said derek chauvin received cpr training who cares like i mean it's relevant but like it's not really going to change anybody's mind she did state that if you can talk you can breathe is not true which Chauvin says in the video, well, he's talking so he can breathe. That's not true. Yeah, yeah. She talked a lot about the need to provide medical care after force is applied. The police is supposed to be trained on like a holistic viewpoint of, of policing, and they're not really. It's, it's just cracking skulls, right, in enforcement. If you were a community service officer, you would be trained in all things medical and fire and police. Completely different style of policing. Yeah. The, the defense talked a lot about drugs and what she knew. and talked about speed balls and fentanyl and opioids and it, it just all struck me as like this person is not an expert on any of this why are you asking her do you ever stick fentanyl in your butthole that was not asked oh that's too bad yeah it was she was deemed to not be an expert in that the defense showed a slide and it was basically a picture of vials of what looked like white substances and it had heroin and fentanyl and something called carfentanil which i've never heard of but it was attempting to illustrate how much of each substance would constitute a lethal dose and the slide said two to three milligrams would constitute a lethal dose there was an, a, a big long lengthy sidebar and eventually this slide got taken down and it it basically just speaks to like who gives a shit what the minneapolis police slide says like is it true we have no idea just because the slide says it doesn't mean it's accurate yep uh, another slide that they showed uh was the opening to the cpr training which said don't worry i know cpr and then it had a picture or an excerpt from the movie dumb and dumber which is what you really want when someone's taking this seriously. Yes, that is absolute key indication. And I actually enjoyed this because it was the prosecution to some extent just kind of poking at the, the police going like, you guys are a bunch of fuckheads. Well, when you want to communicate with a purpose, <clears throat> you generally don't strike the mood of the day with a joke if you want to be taken seriously. 
the first slide should not be Dumb and Dumber. That shows you that they didn't take CPR training seriously and that this isn't a actual skill set that they value within the department. Because if that was a difference, it would have been statistics first about people who know CPR and people who don't know CPR and response times. It would have been the doctor's 10 to 15% reduction in, in resuscitation times, you know, based on how long CPR takes, not administered. And those are you would share first because it'd get people to be interested in fucking learning CPR. Like I can save a life by paying attention for the next four hours instead of like, oh yeah, remember Jim Carrey was in Dumb and Dumber. Remember that movie where he shit in the toilet in the in the toilet flush and then he had opened the window and it, and he just kept shitting in it because his friend gave him diarrhea medicine. Spoiler alert. So after the sidebar and the discussion about the two three milligram fentanyl slide, there was there's a little bit of discussion about load and go and what that means. And again, this witness has like she's not a paramedic. She doesn't operate an ambulance. She just trains people. I I don't think she's qualified to discuss any of this. The 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 prosecution didn't necessarily do object to any of this, but it just struck me as really weird where we can't have we can't have some of the previous people discuss things that they are perhaps even not qualified for, but eminently more qualified to discuss than a training officer. Well, this goes to the defense, just, again, grasping at whatever straws they can. You, you've got two stories trying to be created, right? You have the, the fentanyl butthole story, and you have the police training story. They're trying to discredit her by saying, you don't know what it's like on the field, because you don't ever save lives, so how can we trust your training? The discussion then turned to a police term called excited delirium, and this was first raised by the ER doctor the previous day, but they went way more in detail on it as it pertains to this individual's experience, which is literally as, as a, a trainer, basically. She has no medical background. I think she might have CPR, a lower level EMS training, but she, she doesn't have a residency. She doesn't, she doesn't understand physiology. There, there's no deep medical background, but they wanted to talk to her about excited delirium. What is excited delirium? I actually don't know what excited delirium is because the way they define it doesn't make any sense. I'm going to go to the internet and I'm going to look it up. I'm going to go here. Excited delirium. Now, if I go here, it says the authors concluded that excited delirium is not a unique cause of death in the absence of restraint. Huh. Excited delirium, also known as agitated delirium, is a syndrome described as a combination of psychomotor agitation, delirium, and sweating. It may include attempts at violence unexpected strength and high body temperature complications may include a bunch of shit i don't care about so excited delirium is a medical condition used to justify police force and it's used all the time over and over and over and you have massive institutions justifying it as a way to absolve the police of culpability yep it's like a made-up disease so that uh police can kill you and it's generally defined as the crack will make you superhuman You'll turn into the Hulk, you know, the black man becomes incredibly strong, can't feel pain. It, it's all bullshit. And it's, it's not medically bullshit. recognized as a nope. thing, but it's used as a way for cops to justify their actions. This training cop is asked about what excited delirium is, and she describes it as, well, you can't feel pain. And the prosecution followed up during redirect and was like, okay, well, so was George Floyd under pain? Would that be absence or would that be evidence of excited delirium? And she goes, well, not necessarily. 
you can just see the prosecutors like, well, well, then pain is in no way, shape, or form correlated with excited delirium. So what are you talking about that for? What would a subject's uh, response to pain stimulus suggest then as it relates to excited delirium? That well, it may or may not be excited delirium. Um, it's a little bit hard to um, predict because no two people ever really present the exact same way. So then how do you tell what it is? Uh, well, that's not up for us to diagnose. It's just a matter of taking in the information you have at that time uh, to decide if this could potentially be a case of that, or you just need to plan accordingly. And you indicated that uh, whatever excited delirium is, you'd look at it as a medical issue. Correct. That needs treatment. Yes. Uh, it's just making up shit now. Gotta find a boot-licking doctor to, to say it's excited delirium. This is weird. This whole witness is weird because the prosecution raised her. And, like, maybe in an attempt to have this excited delirium stuff raised and have produced such a poor job of articulating what the propaganda is that it's just directly seen through by the jury initially. I'm, I'm not really sure. But this witness is going to be recalled for the defense next Tuesday, so she has to come back and talk explicitly about excited delirium if she so chooses, because the prosecution argued that the defense doesn't get to raise this issue on cross-examination effectively. So her, her testimony concluded for now, but she'll be back later. And the next witness was called a black guy by the name of Jody Steiger. He's a use of force expert, and he works and is employed by LAPD. The prosecution paid him $10,000 to appear as an expert witness. And his testimony roughly just centered around, what did you review? What are you familiar with? They started walking through the video, and then the judge abruptly adjourned at 3.30 local time. This was an unforeseen adjournment. It's not really understood stood what happened i don't think really anybody knows there's various speculation it doesn't appear to be related to any sidebar or anything that the witness said or a question that was asked we don't know so that's the end of day seven the defense really wants to paint george and the tropes that he can they can to to really give chauvin that that hero status you know of, of he did everything he could and this is what he was presented he did the best he could with what what he had which was an angry mob throwing rotten tomatoes at him, right? Cars swerving to hit him. You know, George Floyd broke four sets of handcuffs and had a, you know, meal on his neck. Whereas the prosecutor is coming at it as, George wasn't in any threat to you. You seem to have taken something that was a minor inconvenience and killed him for it. Like you're pissed off that you broke a sweat or that you were called to the scene so you had to kill the guy because you're, you know, too busy. And, and then it, the third thing that's that's really interesting is it seems like every one of the police witnesses is attempting to maintain the system the best they can. If they throw Chauvin to the lions, they throw him to the lions, and it's not a gentle toss. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.